HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network. Join with the entire crew today, Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, Jack and Joe in the engineering booth. How are you guys doing? Hey. Whoa. Hello. Nice. 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 And speaking of, uh, uh, oh, call any questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Okay. Uh, by the way, cooking or other, you know, anything, spring-related questions, whatever you got. By the way... Uh, I noticed that we had a little bit of a sponsorship club a lo- that we were almost brought to you by beer, and then it turns out we were brought to you by Hirsch Ranch. Hirsch Ranch Grass Fed Beef, uh, greatest greatest uh, grass fed beef song as as we all know, greatest grass fed beef song probably well, ever. Guess what? What? Somebody covered it. Oh, so we're gonna hear that later today. So we're gonna hear a cover version. I think we're gonna play the original first, and then we'll rock with the cover a little later. And I think we should also, at some point, find out what the Reverend Horton Heat is doing these days, and see if we can't <laughs> like get permission from the Reverend Horton Heat for the Hearst Ranch people to have him play his fabulous song "Eat Steak." You remember that song? Let's do it. Yeah, it's a good song. Good song. Well, kind of, kind of a good song. Anyway, uh, but uh, initially brought by beer and beer and beef. Good combo. We should do a, like a sponsorship beer and beef one day. I could do a beer and beef dish. <laughs> nice. Beer, right? Everyone yeah. likes everyone likes a, you know, a Guinness braised uh, cut of beef every now and again. Well, not everyone. Michael Natkin for one. Yeah. Oh, congratulations to him. What happened? He is nominated for a beer award. Sweet. I knew that, but I had to draw you into it. See that? See how <laughs> oh. I had to pretend? See how that works? See how you, like, you know, people out there don't know what's... Anyway, whatever. So, yes, congratulations to Michael Natkin on being nominated for James Beer. Which, uh, which category was it? Vegetarian cookbook. Uh, he better win. Yeah. Who, who's he against? Do we know? There's some good ones. I don't know. I can look it up. We want him to win. We want Michael Nackin to win. I I'm bought just... three books of his for friends. 
Yeah? Christmas. Mm-hmm. With your own money? With my own money. Off Amazon. Michael, Michael, you can't possibly know what an endorsement that is from <laughs> Queen Cheapula, Nastasha Lopez. And you're King Cheapula. I am King Cheapula. <laughs> I am a cheap, cheap, cheap. But it's weird. I'm cheap about some things, not about other things. Right? Anyway, so uh, that, that, all of that is useless information for you out there. Sorry. Uh, really interesting news. Uh, we have a question later uh, having to do with uh, acrylamide in Denmark, which we'll get to later. But I was searching, you know, Denmark and food and problems, and I found something that Nastasha is going to particularly enjoy. I don't know why I think that, but I think she will. And uh, it goes back to the recent spate of scandals whereby everything and its brother has been contaminated somehow, right? And so everyone's now, like, in a complete testing frenzy that uh, the meats that you're getting are not authentic, et cetera, et cetera. Like, perhaps your, perhaps your lasagna is actually a horse lasagna. Mm-hmm. Could be, or at least in Europe. So the latest one, which is, like, super bonks, is uh, new meat scandal, pork in shawarma. What? <laughs> yeah, so it's like more. So there's a uh, so shawarma. You know, for those who don't know what shawarma is, if you know what a gyro is, it's kind of like that hero. If you if you know what a, a donor kebab is, it's kind of like that. But uh, the last thing you want to be doing is uh, being a Muslim and have uh, pork in your shawarma. That's the last thing you want. And so. Um, uh, the uh, Imran Shah, spokesperson for the Islamic Society in Denmark, told the online daily Politiken DK that this is by no means a minor infraction. This is a huge scandal that will cause an outcry among Danish Muslims. Our religion prohibits us from eating pork. Now Muslims will think twice before eating shawarma for fear that, uh, that they're not adhering to the rules of their faith, said Shah. Sold as... This is all from this website. Sold as beef. More than 200,000 Muslims currently live in Denmark, and shawarma is particularly popular because it does not con- traditionally contain pork, which is considered unclean by Muslims. Uh, however, the Danish Veterinary Food uh, Veterinary and Food Administration. Who the heck does veterinary science and food in the same thing? It's kind of crazy, right? I mean, I want that stuff separate. Anyway, found, maybe that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, found traces of the forbidden pork in a fried beef kebab uh, product manufactured by Andalou Kud, the largest supplier of shawarma meat in Copenhagen. Uh, quote, uh, Mustafa Shaheen, the CEO and owner of Andalou Kud, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Whoa. Anyway, I thought you'd like that, yeah. right? It's sorry, it's, sorry. <laughs> uh, it's not. Well, it's not a. La- obviously, it's not a laughing. Food contamination is not a laughing matter. But uh, what's interesting is that as soon as people start testing, uh, the you know the the pork hits the fan. Anyway, uh, Rick writes in uh, regarding uh, chicha that we discussed. I think last week or maybe the week before. Uh, Dave, Nastasi, Jack, and Joe. I was listening to episode one eighteen. I can't believe we've had one hundred eighteen episodes. It's nuts. Uh, in particular, segment about chicha. And for those of you that don't know, uh, chicha is uh, their traditional fermented uh, grain, uh, traditionally corn, corn, I guess. Uh, although yeah, other things, you can use roots, uh, not necessarily grains, starch, starch fermentations uh, from South America. Uh, and, you know, one of the traditional ones is with corn. And in order to get the starch in corn or, or any starch, really, uh, roots, whatever, cassava, whatever, to uh, turn into sugar so that you can ferment them into ethanol, you need to introduce uh, amylase enzymes. One way to do that is to germinate a uh, product uh, by, you know, letting it grow a little bit and then killing the, killing the germ so that you, um, so that you then, d- you know, don't actually like use up all the sugar that you need and then you use the enzymes from the germination to convert the starch to sugar mashing in beer to parlance anyway so um point is is that if you don't mash something out or you don't have something that you can germinate you have amylase where stas 
Saliva. In your spit, yeah. So you can chew stuff up, and it's traditional in a lot of uh, communities that didn't have the ability or products that could germinate properly. Traditionally, things would be chewed up, uh, and then uh, the saliva would be allowed to work on the product such that you could get the same effect as you did from germinating. Okay, that's what we're, that's what we're talking about. Just so you don't have to go back and listen to 118. God help you if you have to do that. Okay. Uh, I recalled an episode of a show called Brewmasters uh, where uh, Sam uh, Calagione – is that how you pronounce it? Calagione. What do you think? You're the Italian. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although he's from like Delaware, so he probably pronounces it differently. At Dogfish Head, great brewery. You know, they make some crazy products, but they also make some incredibly delicious products. Uh, at Dogfish Head, made a chicha beer where he and his staff uh, chewed the corn, spat it out, then added it to the wort, and the beer was then served at the Dogfish Head pub. In the show, they even tested employees to find those people whose saliva had more of the right enzymes needed to break down the corn, referred to by Sam as super chewers. Uh, that in from Rick. So I read one article about uh, them doing this. Here's the thing. So the, the, here's the argument of why it's okay to uh, chew up uh, your stuff and spit it out. The argument is that you're going to boil uh, – like no matter what, you're going to boil the wort anyway, right? So you're going to kill any, any bacteria or any stuff that's in there. Um, it's going to be rendered harmless by the boiling procedure. Now, I don't really know because I haven't had the time to look up whether or not that's legal or not. Like, in other words, like whether or not people would actually be okay if you actually listed the steps. Like, I am literally going to put it in my mouth, chew it up, and spit it out. And I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not saying they didn't serve it because clearly they did. Um, And, you know, I read that it was more difficult than than they let on. They thought they were going to chew through a bunch of pounds of this stuff and nothing flat, and it took them forever to chew it. Turns out, hard work. Uh, But the the, the point is, is that regardless of whether or not it's legal, then then the question is, is it a good idea – to do in your bar, uh, brew pub, or establishment. And for Dogfish Head, it clearly, because they spend a lot of their time experimenting with old techniques uh, and you know ancient brews and ancient beverages, for them, it's clearly a necessary step they need to make. Now, step aside and let's say that you're not Dogfish Head. Like, is it a wise idea? The look on Nastasha's face, the horrified look on Nastasha's face, seems to tell me that, no, it's probably not a good idea. Let me give you – I'm going to get gross here for a sec. You all right with this, Stas? Yeah. I'm going to get gross here, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're literally spitting into something you're going to serve to somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you weren't going to boil it, that wouldn't be okay, right? Right. Right. Now, ready for the gross? Mm-hmm. Like, what if the analog – what if there was an enzyme in poop that did something, Right. For instance, Kopi Luwak, right? When you eat Kopi Luwak coffee beans, they have passed through the gut of a civet cat and been pooped out of the civet cat. The civet cats poop in particular areas. They eat only the choicest coffee beans, and the enzymes in the digestive system do something to the coffee bean to make it particularly delicious. I've never tasted it, but it's extremely expensive, right? Okay. So there you go, pooping the coffee. Now, it's washed and cleaned and sterilized and roasted, so right, nonsense. So if a, a person was to eat coffee beans and poop them out, would that be okay to brew coffee from? Would that be okay? No. Right. So it's, that's the question, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Interesting question. Kind of interesting question. I don't know. I don't really know. Someone tell me. Anyway. Uh, more stuff on the torch name. So as uh, those of you know, uh, we're working on a new kind of torch attachment that uh, you attach it to the torch and it gets rid of the taste that I associate, I call torch taste, which I used to think came from the fuel, but in fact, turns out it comes from just the incredible high heat of a, a torch. We diffuse it, turn it into radiant heat, and we're trying to find a name for this gizmo. You can look on the Cooking Issues blog to get an idea of what the hell we're talking about. A couple people have written in, by the way, asking where they can find the Kickstarter. The reason you can't find it is we haven't put it up yet. We're still... Um, 
we have it out in what's called beta testing. So I ha- you know, we've given it to a group of about uh, five or six chefs or you know, six, ten chefs, and we're having them test it now to see kind of what they, what they think, what they think the problems are, what solutions are to the problems. We're making it safer, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> No, it's a fun process. Uh, oh, it's so fun. It's so, it's so fun that Nastasha wants to stab me in the eye every morning. Okay. Uh, we're, we're all, you know, whatever. I'm, I can be difficult. Okay. So uh, here, here's some of the names because we had a contest on the names. And uh, I think we're going to probably call – like we should probably call the contest after this because we've gotten a lot of really yeah. good names in. And we're pretty sure we're going to go with some combination of Sally plus, plus something else and we're just focusing on it. So we'll, we'll go through and we'll see whether anyone actually earned the free whatever. But we really super appreciate all the names that have been sent in. And I'm going to read the last list of the names. I have name. two more here. So I'll all right. So read them right now. I have the, the new T abbreviation of New Torch and a nod to the Salamander. And I of Newt with T as a capital at the end. I like I have Newt because of the witch thing, but you remember yeah. I actually have to sell this product. Like these, are, so <laughs> yeah. like it's all funny. Like it's all funny. Like these are things that I would come up with as well that I appreciate. That I would, I you know. So there's Pipe, Piper that works with us. He's the pun master. He should quit working with us and go just do puns for a living. For the and, daily news, or yeah, or something. Yeah, but anyway, or for the yeah, whatever. Like the weatherman, whatever. Like meteorologist. Like he could come up with their puns left and right. It'd be awesome at it. Uh, but my my point is is that these are all Piper worthy puns. They're great, but uh, you know they they don't want to necessarily have a product that's supposed to be around for years. But anyway, here's the last list. Uh, Cooking Issues Team. This is from JD. I tweeted a torch name, but decided to email it just to make sure. Oh, that uh, was also JD. No, oh, Myard Reactor. That's a good name. Myard Reactor. But, you know, again, I don't... Anyway, my, it, uh, I re, this is him. I realize it doesn't cover all the functionality, but I think it would be cool to pay homage, homage, pay homage, to the technical term and chemist Louis... Camille Maillard, yeah, famous, famous man, not famous in his own life, the poor SOB. Uh, also, what chef wouldn't want a serious kitchen tool that has reactor in the name? That's actually kind of true. I like reactor. I like reactor. And re- if you look up uh, chemistry re- reactors online, they're pretty awesome. It's right for all sorts of name play in the back of the house. Maillard, that puppy. Give it some more Maya. I like Maya, actually. Uh, love, the, uh, love yard it up, etc. Or Maillard Reaction Torch, MR Torch. You can call it Mr. Torch or Mr. T for an extremely marketable name. Uh, sure, you could easily get Mr. T to endorse it, and of course the tagline would be, I pity the fool, or should I do it, I can't really do Mr. T, I pity the fool who doesn't use my Siri tool. <laughs> uh, cheers, JD. That wasn't bad. Yeah? Uh, it's been a long, long time, and I do love Mr. T. Who does, if you don't like Mr. T, something wrong with you. Anyway. Hey, we got a caller. Yeah. Oh, yeah? All right, we'll get, well, sh- okay, okay, I'll go back to the names in a second. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, uh, Dave. Howdy. How's it going? Do well. I'm, I have a question of, um... So two questions. First is uh, I want to get an ISI whip. I was wondering what's your recommendation as far as uh, the best ISI whip to get. Okay, so is this for home or commercial? Um, home, but uh, hopefully commercial use. So kind of both, yeah. Okay, so I mean I like the ones that f- – First of all, you know I, I have worked with the, with the company in the past, so just you know b- bias there. Uh, but I've yeah. u- I've used the off brand ones before, and they've been okay. given to me and all this stuff. And I have to admit, as much as I hate shilling out for ISI here, uh, the mm-hmm. off brand ones tend to leak, and the seals are cr- cruddy, and they just tend not to work as well. So I stick with the name brand ones. I'm sure there's okay. another high quality one out there, but I don't know. Then uh, I prefer I've I've had the home ones that. Um, you know, are plastic on top and stainless elsewhere. And I think the ones that are kind of all stainless with the um, with the silicone grips are are better, right? So then, now the next question is, what size do you want to go with? And now, for all purpose uses, uh, I think like 
either get the half liter or the liter, depending on what kind of volumes you're going to use. Like unless you have a very specific application for the for the very small one, I wouldn't say it's necessarily that useful. Uh, I tend to use liter ones and half liter ones. The you know the the thing is, if you're going to do small amounts in the full liter ones, you might need to dump an extra cartridge in versus if you were using the half liter one. So, it, but if you're not going to do it all the time, it's not that big of a loss, and your capacity is now all of a sudden greater, right? So you bear that in mind when you're when you're buying one. And um, the other thing is, is that in general. Uh, unless you have a very specific application where you need to keep something hot or cold for a long time, the thermo whips, which are which are insulated, so they, they look like they hold a liter, but they only hold a half liter because they're insulated. They're great if you need to keep something hot for a long time and you don't have access to like a circulator or a bain marie where you can just keep it in hot water. But uh, those applications are fairly you know, they're fairly specific, and the upcharge for the thermo whip is very large. Right. Okay. So, I mean, and remember, anything you can do in a thermo whip, you can do slightly less conveniently in a regular ISI by either sticking it into a hot water bath or by putting it in the mm-hmm. fridge. One of the two. Um, and if you do, if you do buy a thermo whip, you still you need to pre chill it or preheat it with a fluid before you dump your initial before you dump your product in, or it doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. work right. Um, you know, if you do get the leader, you have to contend with the fact uh, that you, you guys got to remember to keep your recipe or anything really, any one of them. You have to make sure that your recipes are the same uh, volumes every time when you're doing things like infusions. For things like whipped creams and foams, it doesn't matter as much. Okay, great. And uh, my second question is, um, I'm trying to uh, mess around with making egg, egg yolk targa. Okay. I was wondering if you had any advice on uh, how to go about doing that because I've seen recipes and seen uh, previous chefs that work with make a target from, uh, you know, a row. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any advice for making egg yolk a target. You mean regular chicken egg yolk? Egg chicken egg yolk. Mm-hmm. Huh. Like kind of curing them so they have the same texture so you can grate them like you would a target. Um, well, I mean... Huh. So how would you do that? Uh, I guess it depends on what you what you want, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean... I would look into kind of miso curing uh, of egg yolks and see kind of a miso cured egg yolk and then get the initial cure. The issue is you have to get enough water out of the egg yolk so that it's stable mm-hmm. before you undergo the normal kind of dehydration uh, process. Yeah. And I know you, you probably don't want the flavor. I've never tried it. This is why I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Is I've never done it. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm just, mm-hmm. I, I would look into seeing how the miso cured egg yolks work. Uh, I mean, the, the bonehead easiest way to do it would be probably to cook the egg yolks out at like 64, mold them into a block, and then and then mm-hmm. uh, with salt, and then uh, and then let them dry, like, batarga style. I don't. I mean, that's the bonehead easy way to do it, but it's not as elegant. I mean, if you want to keep the egg yolk mm-hmm. whole and then grate it later, then you're going to have to do some form of very slow uh, dehydration and salting, and then later expose it to air and let it dry out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because um, I found a recipe for sea urchin batarga where they mix tapioca starch. Oh, yeah, to bind with it? The sea urchin, and then they pureed it, and then folded it into, um, I mean, molded it, and then from there they did some work. I'm wondering if that is an optional tapioca starch with egg yolks. Um, sure. I mean, the question is how, yeah. how much, I mean, you know, a- a- uni is ex- like the eggs. The eggs, uh, the actual eggs, are extremely, extremely fine in uni, right? Yeah. Super fine, mm-hmm. like much finer than they are in the fish rows that they make, uh, mm-hmm. you know, botarga from. 
So yeah. pre- presumably some of them are still whole, and then some of them are beat up by the uh, pureeing, and then and then the tapioca just glues the whole thing together. And then uh, how much yeah. how, they add salt to it? Uh, presumably. Um, I presumably, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. They, they buried they buried it in kosher salt. I don't think they added any salt to it. Right, so they they so buried it in kosher. Yeah. Right, okay. So yeah, so mm-hmm. then the salt is is going through biosmosis. Yeah, I mean, so if it works for that, the problem with you know the problem with regular egg yolks is you, mm-hmm. know, you puree an egg yolk and you puree uni. Pu- uni is going to have more structure pureed, so I guess that's why they're adding the tapioca. Yeah. I mean, like I don't know whether it's going to uh, super adversely affect the flavor, but just taking the egg yolk up to like sixty four. Uh, or 63C mm-hmm. is going to give you enough structure to have it sit around while it's doing its thing. But I don't know if it changes the structure. Mm-hmm. And then, like I say, if you, you can just crack egg yolks into uh, and do, do miso curing of them because, you know, I've, I've never done it, mm-hmm. but I've, I've seen it done. Okay. All righty? Okay. I hope that uh, – please tweet the uh, at cooking issues and tell me what happens when you test this stuff out because uh, it will give yeah, me an absolutely. idea for future people who ask me. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. All right. Uh, okay, back to some torch names. What was the last one we had? Oh, yeah, Celsius Chef writes in. You got like Celsius Chef. Yeah, Celsius Chef. Although, remember, I still fry in Fahrenheit, and I bake in Fahrenheit, but I do all my low-temperature work in Celsius. Uh, hey there, Dave and gang. I have the perfect name for your new tool, the Blowzooka. I totally yelled <laughs> I totally yell down the line for that just because it's fun to say. Keep up the great work, guys, and how do I find the project on Kickstarter if I'd like to support Celsius Chef? We'll let you know when we actually have it up. I mean, look, I got to be honest. I love the name Blozuka. I can't actually call it that, but Blozuka. That was my vote, by the way. Really? I mean, how could it not be? That's an awesome name. I know. Blozuka? Awesome. <laughs> like Blozuka Joe? What do you think? Whoa, can we rename Joe Blozuka Joe? Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Can you write a song, Blozuka Joe? Joe? Yeah, Jack and I will collaborate on this. All we'll right. have it by next week, I think. All right, sweet, sweet. Blazooka <laughs> Joe. Okay. Uh, Ole writes in, hi, here are a few names for your torch gizmo. First of all, I love the word gizmo. Yeah, you Love do. the word gizmo. Yeah. I like the blog Gizmodo just because it's called Gizmodo. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, torch Tamer. The Seer, especially if it can also predict the future. This, by the way, was the vote of Dax, my son. I called it Daddy's Seer for a long time, not knowing what Seer, like searing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he calls it the Seer, which is I kind of like that, but it's, it sounds like kind of like really like occult. Yeah. The Seer, although anyway, the Humane Torch. Oh, the Humane Torch. Oh. Like the Human Torch. Oh, like Human Torch. Yeah, Human Torch. Good, good uh, comic book reference there. And you know, Nastasha always surprises me. I'm always surprised. I love that. <laughs> uh, cooking torch without issues. Did I get it? Yeah. Yeah. And the eye torch. Like, could be eye or eye because it looks like an eye. Honestly, if you're looking to sell more than a few of these, uh, find a clever name. Sous vide torch. Uh, sell the whole deal. Torch head included. And sous vide torch would be the top Google search result. Got to like a Google search result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Got to like that. Uh, no matter what you decide, I was standing in line. Apple Store style to get one. I'm relatively, relatively new to your podcast, but I'm burning through one to three a day. Many thanks. Ole. Ole. You got to mellow out on listening to this. You're, you're going to burn out. Like, we're, we, you can't listen to three of us a day. Yeah. It's not possible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, no more submissions now. Well, the stars, you're so, you're so harsh. I got more in oh, this list. Okay. What the hell's wrong with you? You're crazy. Uh, Dean Wynn writes in, Hey, Nastasha, Dave, Jack, and Joe. I'm not sure where you guys are with the gadget names, but I ha- uh, Gadget, too. Good word. Uh, but I had to throw my hat in. I also like the term throw the hat in. Initially, I thought about broiling and searing, but what you really are doing is applying heat by hand with the precision of an artist. So that led to the idea of a brush, fire brush, flash brush, and torch brush. Big brushes. Uh, thanks for the show. Uh, um, thanks. I love the show and listen to all the podcasts. Hoping to hear my name on the next show. Dean Nguyen. Here's your name again, Dean. Dean Nguyen. Thank you for your uh, submission, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Is that it? For the names. Okay. 
So no more. All right, so should we take a commercial break? Yeah. <laughs> All right, first commercial break. grass-fed beef, pasture-raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Oh, yeah! You're back. Hey, welcome back to Creaky. I thought we were doing the cover. No, we're going to close the show with the cover. We're gonna cl- okay, we have a cover of my favorite grass-fed grass, uh, grass uh, beef song. Coming to you from Joel Gargano. Okay, this question in from Buddha regarding bacon substitution. Hi, Nastasha, Dave, Jack, Joe, et al. Are there any good substitutes for bacon or pork in recipes for soups or other dishes where they are used mainly as a flavoring and not as a focus? I'm a lifelong vegetarian and have never intentionally eaten meat, let alone bacon. Uh, although, uh, you know, you know, uh, everyone knows this. Everyone knows bacon's delicious. So you don't eat it, but I mean, obviously you know that it's delicious even though you haven't eaten it because it's just straight up is, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm a lifelong. Okay. Never intentionally eaten meat, let alone bacon. Normally, when I come across a recipe that calls for bacon, ham, or pork, I will just leave it out. Obviously, I avoid recipes in which the meat is the bulk or main item. Recently, I have come to realize that this is leaving me with bland recipes that are clearly missing something. Most likely, strong flavor components from the meat. Navy bean soup has this. I'm assuming a much di- uh, navy bean soup has. I'm assuming a much different flavor profile with and without ham. Uh, this most recently came to a head when trying to adapt ch- a cheddar ale recipe I found on the Serious Eats blog. What can I do to overcome this issue? I am an ovo-lacto-vegetarian, so solutions involving dairy or eggs are fine with me. When I've asked for solutions to this among my friends, who may be foodies but not necessarily chefs, the general answer is it can't be done or to add some salt, fat, and liquid smoke. Thanks for your thoughts, and I hope Cooking Issues cont- uh, continues to in- entertain and enlighten. Buddha. Okay, this is a great question. Uh, and the issue is is that uh, a lot of chefs who don't have uh, you know certain constraints you know wh- whether you want to call them constraints or not but you know certain ingredients that they won't use uh, they tend to uh, ignore the 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 problem and say things like oh I just can't do it or just add something that's you know relatively not so good like uh, and by the way there are good liquid smokes uh, and obviously smoke is one of the components in bacon and something that you're going to be missing if you don't have smokings but there are, there are better ways than using uh, a low quality liquid smoke high quality liquid smoke is good stuff but it's also hard to dose liquid smoke you add a little too much liquid smoke and all of a sudden there's there's problems anyway back to that uh so 
the 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 question and people like I say they they ignore it. Me on the other hand, even though I eat bacon, you know, quite often, uh, and I use it a lot as a seasoning meat. I think you know bacon and country ham are two of my most favorite seasoning meats, where you don't actually have to use that much of it to get a good result. But uh, saying what can you do uh, to get around it is to me is an interesting problem and something to solve. So here 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 are my thoughts. What is it that bacon is is adding? So <clears throat> it's adding salt, right? So you need to add salt. It's also adding um, it's also adding smoke if you're using American bacon, which is why I like American bacon, even in recipes where I shouldn't like American bacon, like Italian recipes where Nastasia's like, you have to use pancetta because it's not authentic. And I really I don't care if it's authentic because I like the smoke, right? Stas, you you hate it. I right? use bacon in carbonara too. Really? Yeah. Since when? You've been yelling at me for years, for years. <laughs> you should use. Pancetta, but usually they, the ones that they sell in the store is really bad. Yeah, well, you heard it here first. Yeah. yeah, you heard it here first. It turns out that we're American and we like smoky bacon, even when we should. But shouldn't. in Italy, the pancetta is smoky. It's just not. You can't find it here. Whatever. Okay. You Did you ever, you ever buy that pancetta? The like packaged yes, pancetta at the store. Awful. It's so bad. It's so bad. I've never yeah. purchased. Oh that. man. I've never. Anyway, wait, 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 so so, so not a good look. So Buddha, we're not answering your question. Here, back to your question. So uh, smokiness is definitely something you need to replace when you're replacing a smoked ham product or a bacon product. Now, liquid smoke isn't the way to go. So like, if you were going to do a pizza and you wanted it to have a little bit of that uh, component, right? Then, uh, for instance, I, I have to always when I make pizzas, I have to make them vegetarian, completely vegetarian, because my cousin who comes over and eats at my house is vegetarian and won't eat, uh, you know, won't eat meat. So I can't put anchovies into my sauce, which is a normal one of my techniques that I put in, and no one's ever complained because it tastes delicious and it adds a lot of umami. Maybe he'll and so become a meat eater now. No, he won't. Okay. Anyway, so uh, smoked mozzarella, right, is a good way to add smoke uh, in that form. Uh, or if you're doing a cheddar uh, ale thing, use a smoked cheese, but high quality, not a crappy one where they spray fake smoke on it. Um, Secondly, smoked paprika uh, or pimenton, a fantastic way to add uh, smokiness to um, a dish. So, <clears throat> right, so th- you know, those are the, how else do I add smoke? There's a lot of anything that you add that is smoked naturally can add some of those smoky flavors and probably does it in a way that you're going to like better than just adding uh, straight up. Uh, liquid smoke, which, like I say, is hard to dose, and it can it can go from being too little to all of a sudden being too much. And also, a low quality liquid smoke is very monotonic. It has one very characteristic kind of note to it, but in part because of the way it's produced, and in part because you can't buy a high quality one usually. Anyway, okay. So the other things, I mean, salt is obvious. You can add salty things, but I usually like to add salty foods that aren't just adding pure salt, but to also add the umami products that you get, the meaty umami uh, things that you get out of um, out of things like bacon. So how do you get that? Any food that contains uh, amino acids that have been broken down somewhat into smaller, uh, tasty, uh, you know, uh, polypeptides and uh, breakdown, like protein breakdown products, especially if they've been cooked to give them some of that cooked flavor that you would get out of uh, cooking bacon in a pan before you uh, add the soup stuff to it, right? Anything that's going to add those flavors is going to make your product better. So that's when you start pulling out like <clears throat> Parmesan cheese being great uh, as something that adds umami because it's been aged for a long, long time and the proteins have broken down and you get a much richer, more umami feel out of it, right? Tomato products, clearly very high in umami. Ground up cured olives, right, are excellent uh, uh, umami-carrying um, thingamajigs. Uh, also, uh, 
liquid aminos, right? So uh, fermented sauces. Now, when you think of something to add umami to soups, uh, your mind probably first goes directly to soy. The problem is if you add soy to a product, all of a sudden it uh, it starts tasting Asian, right? So you can go to different products like coconut liquid aminos or any sort of fermented broken down uh, product where you're getting some of those meaty notes that you would otherwise get from a uh, from adding straight meat. Oh, and obviously mushrooms. Is it any good? Am I missing anything? No, you're good. Yeah, I mean, like, and so some combination of all of those things, but even just like making sure that you stock items that allow you to do quick uh, substitutions, like a really high quality smoked pimenton, like smoked paprika, and you know, always, always, you know, maybe try the coconut liquid aminos, see what you think, uh, and just you know, work that way. I think you probably have good luck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Ruben. Writes in about his home kitchen. Uh, Hammer, Jack, Joe, and Dave. I'm an avid fan of the show. Thanks so much for all your contributions and work. And for the chartreuse, which is the drink we do at the bar, it's it's really just uh, chartreuse, uh, green chartreuse, and uh, water chilled, carbonated with a little bit of uh, clarified lime juice in it, like like really carbonated. Anyway, uh, Ruben says that's one tasty beverage. I'm sure the Carthusians would agree. You know, we met the we met the president, Nastasha and Piper, and I met the president of chartreuse uh, the other day, mm-hmm. and uh, he was kind of hilarious. Like I would like to go visit those monks someday. Apparently, you know they can't talk to Carthusians when they're doing their when they're in the monastery. But if you get them outside the monastery, they uh, they, they they can talk. Loved it. I loved it. I mean, that movie that they did looked incredibly boring, but I'd love to go visit them, right? Anyway, uh, whatever. Okay, question. Uh, I'm in the conceptual stages of renovating the kitchen in my apartment. As a home cook and devotee of many contemporary techniques discussed here and elsewhere, I'd like to create a work area that is functional for the current state of the art, yet flexible enough to incorporate future innovations. I have a small space, don't we all, right? Uh, limited budget. I'm familiar with this problem. Uh, and one shot at this. Much as I'd like, I don't have the luxury of putting in a completely restaurant-style work area that would render my apartment unsaleable. This is a huge problem, by the way. So, like, my kitchen at home is ridiculous, and, you know, it probably would be an impediment to selling it because I have the huge deep fryer, the huge six-burner range, all this other stuff. Um Anyway, as wonderful as it is to have new ways to approach cooking, it's frustrating that uh, design thinking and ergonomics have seemingly not kept pace. Hearing your recent offhand thoughts about the outdated state of technologies like home refrigeration makes me further concerned that any specialized approach uh, I take might be limiting in the future. Would you share any tips, must-dos, cautionary tales, uh, or overarching philosophies or nominally related tangents? Uh, familiar with us, I guess. Uh, you are, uh, have uh, faced or anyone you know has faced with similar quandaries. Thanks much. Ruben, okay. Uh, here's the thing. So, uh, look, at home, you know, I, it's very hard. You have to choose whether you're either going to have a convenient, like convenient, easy home stuff or you have in the past had to choose between easy, convenient home stuff and uh, like hardcore restaurant stuff. And the hardcore restaurant stuff has a lot of problems for homes. For instance, regular restaurant uh, kitchen stoves throw off a boatload of heat. They're not as well insulated. Uh, they typically have standing pilots. So it means they're running all the time. So in the summertime, they really heat up your house. Uh, in fact, in the summertime, I turn the pilot off in my oven and I just leave my oven off and I do all my cooking in the salamander and, and on my uh, on my crepe maker for most of the time because no one wants to have that oven raging during the during the summertime. It's crazy, right? So uh, for some reason, there is a there's a real disconnect. So, you know, the most that most people at home, and, and I wouldn't recommend 
getting that, even if you could resell your house with it. And by the way, the professional stove, like a lot, a lot of people get freaked out by it. Like they don't, especially mine, because it's all PID controlled and like electronic, and you have to plug it in in five different places. My mine, mine in particular is a nightmare. But people get weirded out by it. They love the idea of these. Uh, you can't see the quote, you know, quote marks that my fingers are making. But professional style home ones. Most of the ones I've used that are professional style home ones are fairly lacking in terms of their output power. However, um, if you can find uh, like one that's like one of these kind of home professional jobs in a stainless uh, that has a fairly high output burner, and I don't have any recommendations because I haven't used one at home. I I use uh, an old Garland that you know I bought at a restaurant auction for almost nothing. Oh, by the way, another tack you can take uh, with a limited budget is to go to restaurant auctions. If you live in a place where there's a restaurant auction, get the commercial oven that you actually want, install it, and and when it comes time to uh, sell your apartment, throw it away and buy a normal oven to put into your into your kitchen. That's what I plan on doing. Like when I sell my apartment, I'm just going to rip out my oven that it's put in like many many years of good service to me that I bought for five hundred dollars, including the salamander at an auction. Right? Uh, I'm just going to hurl it. At you know, into the abyss, or give it to someone who wants give it. it. To someone. You should auction it. Uh, please, it will be unsafe. I can't actually give it to anyone because so many modifications that I wouldn't want anyone else to have to give it with the what's it called? I don't know what that means. That I don't. That, yeah, whatever. That, anyway, you know, yeah, sure. So I can get so I can get my butt handed to me. Anyway, the. Um, Point being that you can put that in for very little money if you're willing to put up with the inconvenience and then later put in uh, a new unit. But I wouldn't necessarily go there. But you definitely need uh, good high output burners. Uh, if you have a lot of electricity and you don't have a lot of ventilation, induction might be the way to go if your cookware it can stand it. Although I have to say, having grown up, I mean, I honestly believe that induction is the wave of the future. Uh, but, you know, I'm an old school, uh, you know, gas flame fiend. And I don't know that the, in- the induction... I, I use induction at work exclusively because we don't have gas burners at work, and I still I still would feel very sad if I didn't have my gas burners at my house. You know yeah. what about you, Stas? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, although an electric oven might be the way to go. I mean, it depends on how much modification you're willing to do and how handy you are. I mean, I, I recommend having a, a a deep fryer only for me. Most people wouldn't do that, and that would destroy the resale value of your kitchen. So I wouldn't do that. Although I highly recommend owning one if you if if you want to become a monk of the fry, then you need to have a real fryer. I think that's just the case. Anyway, but but you're not going to do that, so it doesn't matter. What I would just maximize your counter space. Uh, from I would get you know six burners that can do a really good job that also throttle down to a low enough setting that that uh, you know they're still useful. Make sure your oven uh, has a full sheet pan capacity. If you have a full sheet pan capacity oven and six burners, and then you you give yourself enough space to have a um, enough space to have all the ancillary equipment like your circulators uh, or you know counter space for the vacuum things like this. Then I think you're going to be in good shape. Problem. Uh, also, I would throw away. Here's the big thing. I think everyone mistake everyone makes. They have all these different kinds of bowls and all these different kinds of gotsies in their kitchen, and then they they never know how to use them and never find them. If, like uh, I'll give you the quick example. You have to plan to have space in your kitchen to have this stuff out. My old uh, loft, the uh, my pasta machine, my, the roller, you know, the Atlas pasta machine roller, was bolted to my countertop. So, consequently, I made pasta uh, about uh, once a week. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. once or twice a week, depending. I would make pasta because everything was out and the amount of time it took me to make the pasta was roughly equivalent to the amount of time it would take me to cook dry pasta because I was so fast because I did it all the time. Uh, in my new kitchen, I don't have space. It's not bolted to the counter. I've lived there for 10 years, and in 10 years, I've made pasta 10 times because the stuff's not out. You need to have – so like I think the main problem people make when they're, when they're trying to – if they want to use something all the time at home, you have to make it convenient. And <clears throat> I would have uh, a mixture of open and closed storage so that your uh, open storage is very fast. You don't have to worry about it. I would throw away all your odd-sized bowls. I would go to a kitchen supply store and buy inexpensive stainless steel bowls uh, in four sizes. I would buy six of each size, large, uh, a a small for mise en place stuff, and then a a next size up, a next size up, and a large. I would have stacks of those. Do not stack them inside of each other. Put them next to each other. Get two, like two or three different sizes of stackable, uh, um, like Pyrexes or measuring cups in two different sizes, and have those things out so that they work and get like you know easy to use things for like uh, bulk storage of flour that seal properly so that you don't get vermin problems. And like th- that's like the biggest that's like the biggest thing. You know what I mean? Like keeping those stuff uh, in and out and being able to grab those things very quickly. Then make like I say, make sure you have enough room for your circulator and make sure you have enough power. The problem with a lot of these new tech techniques is that uh, you're plugging stuff in and then all of a sudden you don't have enough power and you're blowing circuits. So you're running your nuke at the same time that you're running your rice cooker and if you have an electric uh, pressure cooker and you're starting blowing circuits everywhere. So think about trying to run a few extra circuits in and just make sure you have enough burner work. And the last thing I will say is please try to get uh, good ventilation into your kitchen. I have done – I shouldn't say this – but like illegally vented my kitchen. Uh, I put a uh, – like a what's the word you know dryer ducts yeah dryer duct so it looks like I have a dryer duct but I'm venting my whole kitchen uh, out of it and you have to be really careful and know what you're doing to make sure that you're not causing a fire hazard when you're venting from uh, you know like a kitchen but even if it means just putting a good fan in your window and trying to get the stuff out please make sure you ventilate properly because when you're doing uh, finishing of low temperature meats that you've cooked you generate a lot of smoke and it can be problematic if you don't vent does this make any sense mm-hmm. alright so let's take one more commercial break and come back with cooking issues. It's a very dark cover of the Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef song. Yeah, it's like, wow. Those cows going to slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> you see, Stiles, whenever she says something like that, she leans back. I hope you folks at home heard that. Yeah, she's like, yeah, you think, you think uh, Joel's focusing on the slaughter aspect? <laughs> it's like, imagine, like, playing that. Like, I can imagine, like, the helicopters flying in and, like, you know, strafing the cows. Yeah. So, you know, slaughter, slaughter via minigun. Hey, French, grass-fed beef. Crazy. All right. 
Uh, Tom Flashman writes in uh, at Drink, Drink Away Time, which is, uh, I guess, his Twitter handle. Uh, for stabilizing frozen drinks like margaritas, is gum type important? Xanthan, Arabic, guar, etc. Okay, look. I have not done a lot of testing uh, trying to stabilize frozen drinks, but here's the problem. Uh, so if you're talking about a frozen drink in a blender, right, the issue with stabilizing it is that ice floats. And when you're blending, you're making little ice crystals. So you, what you have in general is a nice uh, kind of mixture of ice crystals and drink. Then slowly the ice crystals uh, float up to the top and, and it breaks. Now, I guess what you're suggesting is to add enough of a thickener to the product such that those ice crystals remain suspended. Now, I guess it's possible to do it. And if it was very slushy, it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, you wouldn't want to use... So your choices were xanthan, arabic, guar. Okay, so arabic is not so much a uh, going to be good for um, keeping keeping the ice particles stationary. Assuming we're even talking about the same thing, I think we are, right? Uh, arabic is going to be more good at uh, stabilizing air bubbles and foams, right? So for adding like a good you know foamy head, or for emulsifying oils into something. So it's very good uh, at emulsifying, and it's good at kind of uh, at adding body. But you have to add a whole boatload of arabic for you to get like great viscosity out of it, because uh, arabic is one of the very few hydrocolloids that is ping pong ball shaped instead of spaghetti shaped. And and ping pong ball shaped things are – imagine trying to punch through uh, a bunch of ping pong balls a lot easier than trying to punch through a mat of spaghetti or felt, right? So think about it. So uh, um, gum arabic, ping pong ball shaped can – that's why you can have extremely high concentrations of gum arabic and still have things be liquid. So I wouldn't necessarily use uh, arabic if, if the application you're talking about is what I think you're talking about. Now, uh, guar – uh, problem with guar, uh, aside from the fact that nine tenths of guar uh, is not good, it tastes beany because it hasn't been refined enough. Uh, but you can get really good refined guar called flavor free guar. A couple people make it, but the one I use is from TIC Gums called flavor free guar. Plus, also you know guar very expensive now due to fracking, fracking, fracking. Uh, we talked about that a million times, right? Okay, so I don't need to talk no. about it again. Although it makes me angry. Anyway, uh, not the fracking, the guar. And uh, I, mean, I mean, maybe the fracking makes me angry. I just don't know enough about it. Anyway, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Problem with guar is that. Uh, Guar is literally just a thickening agent, so it'll slow down uh, how fast ice crystals are moving through the liquid, but it's not going to stop them, right? Because guar solutions have no what's called yield point. They, they flow slowly, but they always flow, right? So, uh, I mean, just Im imagine this. They just they always – it's just a matter of how fast they flow. Xanthan, on the other hand, which is the first one that you uh, mentioned, xanthan gum – has what's called a yield point, which means that uh, even in fairly low concentrations, uh, unless a product is moving, the um, it xanthan acts like a gel. There's no movement at all. It's stationary. And then once you apply any force, it undergoes what's called shear thinning, and it turns to a liquid very, very quickly. Right, very quickly, and this is a uh, this is a, like a well known uh, property of xanthan, and it's why you can use xanthan in combinations with other things to um, do things like uh, stop uh, pepper and other salad part you know salad dressing particles from floating to the top. You can keep them suspended. Uh, 
you know, fluid gels are also very good at this. So you can use – so Orbitz, the old Orbitz uh, drink that had those little balls floating in them was a fluid gel that was made out of gelan gum that was blended and then with xanthan added, right? Also, if you thicken somewhat with something like guar, you can add less xanthan. Here are the problems, right? Uh, xan- over xanthan products uh, have a snotty, slimy texture to them. So you can add some, but you can't add too much. If you add like a quarter percent, if that's enough to suspend it, then you're okay. But if you have to add much more than a quarter percent of xanthan, uh, you want to want to start adding other things to help, uh, you know, help hold with the xanthan, or you get these kind of snotty, slimy textures. The other thing is, is that the ability of a fluid gel or a hydrocolloid like xanthan with a yield point to suspend particles like ice is very dependent on the density difference between uh, the products you're suspending and the size of the particles. So the bigger the density difference, the harder it is to suspend, and the larger the particle with a given density difference, the harder it is to suspend. Ice is quite a bit less dense than... uh, than the drink that it's in, quite a bit less. And so it can be fairly hard to keep suspended. But that said, you could try some xanthan, and maybe anyone else out there has tried this, they can give it a shot. Uh, the only problem is, is if the drink sits around for a long time and you've suspended it, once it melts, it'll have that weird uh, xanthan look to it, right? right? So if someone's going to pound it right away, I guess it's not a big problem. But anyway, I, I could think more about it, but those are just my current thoughts. Yeah? Good. Yeah, yeah. I need her there. She's like, she's like, Dave, shut up about the Xanthan. Shut up. Okay. Uh, Morton Matson writes in again, uh, which we appreciate. Uh, Dear Dave, thanks once again for your input on my quail egg conundrum. Because we were talking about the ISI with the quail egg, and mm-hmm. I think that's great. I want you know someone to like if I whatever. I think it's a good idea. I'm very happy. That, I'm very happy about that. Anyway, uh, I have a comment and a question for you. Firstly, I've been thinking about the question you had in last week about the use of nanoparticles in food. And so uh, just to recap, uh, you know, there's these particles, nanoparticles, and uh, particle size is not regulated uh, by um, the FDA, and therefore, uh, you know, something that could be safe in normal size uh, might possibly be rendered unsafe by turning it into tiny, tiny, tiny particles. So, um, right, so that is what we're talking about. Um, the first thing that popped into my head was the appearance of nanoparticle solutions. A solution of even-sized nanoparticles will appear as a clear-colored liquid. The uh, color of liquid is determined directly by the size of the nanoparticles. The reason uh, a clear – by the way, clear-colored – you know, a lot of people, when they, when they think about clear, they, they – the right thing to think about – is clear versus cloudy and then color versus, uh, you know, non-colored, right? Mm -hmm. So a cloudy, colorless solution is white and a, you know, a clear colored solution, it has a color to it. Now, a lot of people have this issue when they, when we talk about clarification, they expect clarification to take the color out. Clarification doesn't take the color out. Clarification, all it does is take out the cloudiness. Um, Anyway, okay. So uh, the color of the liquid is determined directly by the size of the nanoparticles. The reason that the solution does not appear opaque as milk is that the scattering regime changes when the particle size gets comparable with the wavelength of visible light. And by the way, emulsions are cloudy because – this is me talking now. Uh, Emulsions are cloudy because um, the particles scatter light. Once you have what's called a microemulsion and the actual thing – you know, the the emulsified product in it, uh, all of a sudden the particles get smaller than the wavelength of light, then the emulsion goes cloudy. Anyway, um, this random. Um, in this regime, the behavior is determined by me scattering. Uh, I think it's pronounced me, although I don't know. 
I think so. Anyway, uh, one application of this could be coloring drinks uh, as almost any desired color could be achieved. Secondly, one could imagine changing the solution such that the nanoparticles flocculate together and change the appearance of the solution completely. Could, we could have used this kind of concept when we were dealing with, uh, with, with that uh, drink you had to make in Florida that time. Remember, Stas? Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. Colloidal gold solutions are one candidate for this purpose. I've seen colloidal gold solutions approved for medical applications, so I would imagine they could be consumed. Uh, generally, on the issue of safety, I would agree with you that it is an issue that is riddled with biased thinking. It is, of course, also a very complicated issue since the properties of the materials uh, change when the particles become nano-sized. This is, of course, also why we generally find them so interesting. Uh, I felt that one cannot make any general statements on the safety of nanoparticles. Rather, one should consider each one individually. And before I go on to the question, is, that's the comment, uh, before I go on to the question, let me just say I went and looked on the internet at the uh, at the at pictures of uh, different size gold nanoparticle solutions. And you know what really struck me is that the color difference based on the size of it very, very closely looks like the exact color shift that happens to anthocyanin pigments when the pH is changed. So they go from red to uh, blue, to well, red to violet, to blue to green to colorless. So, um, you know, I, and I'm, I never actually thought about it before, what the heck is going on when you're changing the pH with anthocyanins? I mean, it's got to be something where you're changing the conformation or something of the anthocyanin and therefore um, you know, changing its reaction to the way it scatters light. But I never really thought about it. It's interesting that the gold, the gold solutions look almost exactly like anthocyanin solutions at different pHs. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me, probably to no one else. Definitely not to Nastasia. Nastasia's like, please, can I buy some shoes on Zappos? Please, <laughs> well, please. Piper asked me. He got the wrong size the other day, so... What? Are you for real? You and Piper ordering shoes for Christ. I think we single-handedly support Zappos. I've never ordered shoes on Zappos. You've never ordered shoes on Zappos? never. What shoe site do you shop on? Zero. I go to Payless Shoe Source. You go to Payless? Yes. On Delancey. On Delancey. They have a website. Payless? (laughs) No. I go there. Whatever. Whatever. She's not wearing Payless shoes right now. Yes, I am. These are Payless. Well, Whatever. That, eh, whatever, I'm not going to get into it. Okay, so uh, the actual question deals with acrylamide. Within the last couple of days here in Denmark, all the news have been dominated by scares of acrylamide in food. The reason for this is the Technical University of Denmark has published a new study uh, where they connected acrylamide to cancer. And I couldn't get that study. Did you get email that study, Nastasha? I couldn't get the study. Maybe it's only in Danish. I was looking for it. I couldn't find it. Anyway, uh, the Technical University of Denmark has published a new study where they have connected acrylamide to cancer, presumably connected again because it's been connected a bunch of times and then debunked and then connected and then debunked. This, of course, is nothing new in general, but their study includes statistics for humans as well as rats and mice. In general, for these studies, I've always felt it is not fair to compare studies made on animals to humans. Humans are unique in having cooked and eaten foods for thousands of years and therefore haven't been exposed to these products of cooking. I would like it if you could say a few wise words. Well, I don't know about that. Few wise words about acrylamide. The problem here in Denmark is that the scare has reached a level where politicians are talking about making regulations towards acrylamide. Since this means not being able to buy bread with a crust or even crunchy French fries, I'm naturally opposed to the idea. It seems that scientists making the studies have been victims of oversimplifications in the media, but still their results remain. I've seen a couple of papers where enzymes, specifically uh, asparaginase, have been used to reduce acrylamide in potato chips. Does one need to worry about acrylamide, or is this another minor extra risk that we should should be willing to take for the sake of good food. And also, can we find reasonable means of reducing acrylamide without compromising the food we all love? Best wishes, Morton Madsen. Interesting question. So, for those of you that are fresh to the acrylamide problem, here it is. In 2002, Swedish scientists... 
found that what was known is known or has been known as both a uh, human um, like mu- like mu- like a reproductive harm like mutagen right and also possible carcinogen acrylamide uh, at least it was found to cause cancer or had been found to cause cancer in uh, laboratory animals with, with very high dosages by the way. Uh, Turns out that it's occurring in foods, and it's not an additive. Uh, it just happens when products get cooked at high temperatures, right? And so, uh, and you know, anything that is browned or and contains starch uh, has been found to have uh, acrylamide in it, just naturally occurring. And so, when this first came out in two thousand two, it was a big hoopla, of, you know, of what was going to go on. And then, of course, there was the people. Oh my God, they're adding this stuff to food. No, they're not adding. It's not new. It's not some sort of new environmental problem. It's always been there. Acrylamide has always been in our food supply. When I say always, at least since we've been cooking things. Anytime we've cooked things, uh, especially starchy things, and we've cooked them to the point where they get brown and delicious, uh, acrylamide was formed. I haven't read the uh, article you were talking about uh, that was talking about asparaginase, but according to the FDA, and I haven't read you know all the har- hardcore studies, uh, FDA site says acrylamides form from sugars and, amino- and an amino acid, asparagine, during certain types of high-temperature cooking, such as frying, roasting, and baking. So there might be some way to reduce it there. Um, but the, you know, it, it becomes a really sticky thing because now all of a sudden people are saying, well, uh, you, ha- you know, <clears throat> you have this product, acrylamide, and it's in all, uh, all of the food that we eat, right? Basically anything that's cooked, it's brown. I mean, if you're a raw foodist, you're safe, safe, safe. Uh, well, from that, uh, I mean, your bowels may be a different problem, but like, you know, you're safe from acrylamide. Uh, so, you know, and, and even if you don't eat bread or start coffee, Right, because it's roasted cocoa, because it's roasted anything that's roasted with its high temperature. So, what are you going to do? Uh, and it, we have a thing in California. Uh, well, I mean, I don't live in California. Stas has a thing in California called uh, Prop sixty five. You familiar with that? The no. no, no, no. You know the front, like Prop sixty five. Mm-hmm. So, in California, if you if you have a if you're on a list uh, of if you if you have any product that you're selling that contains a known carcinogen, you have to write on it. Uh, that this product contains uh, something known to the state of California to cause cancer, right? And you're, you're obliged to warn that it's in there. So there's a huge lawsuits because McDonald's makes like a zillion dollars selling French fries every year. And so a bunch of lawyers went and filed lawsuits in California saying that they had to warn their customers that the French fries might cause cancer because of acrylamide because it contains acrylamide. And that was a big to do. And, you know, I mean, it's foolishness. Obviously, it's foolishness. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, a friend of mine was involved with it and I told him, I was like, this is foolishness because it's, it's always been there. It's been there. I actually went on the internet to look it up and there was a Starbucks that had the warning sign about acrylamide in coffee. I don't know whether that's actually de rigueur in California or whether someone just put it up as a joke. But anyway, people are taking that uh, seriously. However, uh, you know, the, and here's the other problem with it the numbers are all over the map. So, I, you know, if FDA has a very interesting site because they don't really know what's going on uh, with acrylamide. They're still trying to figure out what the heck the deal is. I'll tell you, I'll t- here's what they say. In 2013, the FDA, this is straight off their website, f- FDA.gov. Uh, in 2013, FDA intends to issue guidance for industry concerning acrylamide in food. Since 2002, the FDA has initiated a broad range of activities related to acrylamide. FDA's accomplishments include the following, developing developing an action
action plan outlining the FDA's goals and planned activities, convening meetings, developing methods for measuring acrylamide, analyzing the acrylamide results, which they did. They analyzed 2,600 samples of food and acrylamide, including like they'll go to like eight different Popeyes. I think it was more like three, but like three different Popeyes, like five different Arby's, like two different Burger Kings, and they'll measure the French fries and all of them. And here's what sucks, right? So like different establishments or even the same establishment on different days or like one Lay's product and then a different Lay's product have vastly different, vastly different acrylamide levels. So it's not even something that's like standard that they can tell. They don't really even know. I mean, you know, they're working on ways to get rid of it. But here's, here's, I haven't read, I can't read the the Denmark thing uh, because I can't, I can't get to it. I couldn't find it. But uh, there is a study out that I will read the uh, beginning of for you uh, that came out last year. Okay, it's called "Review of the Epidemiology." Uh, let me get it for you so I can get it for you exactly right. It, the review of the uh, epi- epidemiologic studies of dietary acrylamide intake and the risk of cancer. And I will read to you by Lauren Lipworth. I'll read to you the uh, abstract. Conjectured associations between dietary acrylamide intake and cancer have been evaluated in more than 15 epidemiologic studies examining almost every major cancer site. We have critically reviewed uh, the epidemiologic studies of estimated dietary acrylamide exposure and cancer. As substantially greater acrylamide exposure occurs through tobacco smoke than dietary exposure, we present the results separately for never smokers or adjusted statistically for smoking status where possible. After an extensive examination of the published literature, we found no consistent or credible evidence that dietary acrylamide increases the risk of any type of cancer in humans, either overall or among non-smokers. In particular, this is the important part, the collective evidence suggests that a high level of dietary acrylamide is not a risk factor for breast, endometrial, or ovarian cancers, which have generated a particular interest because of a conjectured hormonal, hormonal mechanism for acrylamide. Moreover, the absence of a positive association between smoking and ovarian and endometrial cancers cancers suggest that any association of these cancers with the much lower, more sporadic dietary acrylamide intake is unlikely. In conclusion, epidemiologic studies of dietary acrylamide have, uh, intake have failed to demonstrate an increased risk of cancer, and here's my favorite part. In fact, the sporadically and slightly increased and decreased risk of ratios reported in more than two dozen papers uh, strongly suggest the pattern one would expect to find for a true null association over the course of a series of trials. There. Uh, therefore, uh, continued epidemiologic investigation of acrylamide and cancer risk appears to be a misguided research primarily, pri- uh, priority. A- in a reaction to that, uh, there was a reaction to that, uh, and not, uh, not unsurprisingly, it was called Reaction on the Acrylamide and Cancer Review by Lipworth and colleagues by uh, Janneke uh, Hugevorst out of um, – uh, where is this from? They're from the Netherlands. And they, they basically they disagree with some of the things, but their conclusion is some weak sauce. Their con- the actual criticism of this article that is, we believe that the author's statement that continued epidemi- uh, epidemiologic research into the possible link between dietary acrylamide exposure and cancer appears to be a misguided priority, is itself misguided and based on flawed reasoning. We should be working towards better classification of dietary acrylamide exposure and establishing the possible mode of action rather than giving up on it entirely. So they're like, well... You know, we should give up, just not entirely. You know, that's like a weak way to end your paper, right? Weak, weak, weak. We'll give up, but just not entirely. But uh, I can't, I can't find the Denmark study. Uh, but let me just say this: if I have a slightly increased cancer rate, 
and this is a horrible thing to say flipply, but it, like if there is a slight, slight uptick and it means that I can't ever have delicious French fries again, to hell with it. I'm having the French fries. Cooking issues. Hey, Dave. Yeah. We've got one more write-in. Uh, somebody wants to suggest Inflamo. For the, uh, Inflamo. Inflamo. That's oh, wait, and Jack, uh, and I know we're late. We have a contest, We too, do. Right? We have one final contest. So the Just Food Conference, and if you don't know who Just Food is, they're a nonprofit organization that connects communities with local farms. Really cool people. We love them. We'll be doing a presentation on how to make your own podcast. The conference is this weekend, and we're giving away two tickets to the listener who can tell me the original theme song for Cooking Issues. So tweet us, email us, info at heritageradionetwork.org. And uh, hopefully you win. What are they? What are they, they going to get again? What, what? Two tickets to the Just Food Conference, which is this weekend. Okay, so hurry up! Hurry up! Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.